Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Do the show properly. Here we go now. In five, four, three, two, and one. Welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Sheila Stafford, the founder and CEO of Team Sense. Sheila, thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So Sheila, love the backdrop. Tell me the story about the pinball machine behind you. Yeah. So, you know, growing up, my parents uh, were not ones to just give us anything that we wanted as a kid. And, you know, it was really instilled in us that if we wanted something, we had to earn it. And so one of my things as a kid was like constantly trying to figure out how I could always earn money. And I was really fortunate to grow up uh, in a place that uh, afforded an opportunity for a kid to earn some money. And that was really close to where the Buffalo Bills play. At the time, it was called Rich Stadium. Now I think it's like Highmark Stadium or something like that. But in the state of New York, they have a deposit on cans. And so when you turn in cans, you can get a nickel a piece. And so I developed a, a little business there on, on recycling cans. And I started off with just, you know, running around with a couple bags and there happened to be a 7-Eleven right across the street. And so I'd pick up some, you know, bags of cans and I'd take it over to 7-Eleven and quickly turn that in for cash and go in and do it again. But then I got smarter and thought like there had to be a more efficient way to, uh, to make some money. And so my neighbor was throwing out this, this old refrigerator box. And so I grabbed the box and my dad is always pretty handy and had all kinds of, you know, little materials laying around. And so I, I fashioned a, a trailer uh, connected to this box to my bicycle. And I wrote, you know, cans on the box and I took it down to the stadium and I, I left the big giant box, you know, near the door. Obviously you can't take cans in. And I would go around and kind of had a, a little, you know, round robin trip to fill up this box of cans, drive it directly across the street to 7-Eleven in which they hated me every time they saw me coming because they knew I had all these dirty cans that I was turning in, turned that into cash. And at like, I don't know, eight, nine years old, acquired that sweet uh, pinball machine that's now since followed me around since uh, being a child. Well, we know there's no shortage of cans at the uh, Buffalo no Bills tailgates. <laughs> What was it about that experience? What were some of the, the uh, you know, tangible business skills that you learned you know, at a young age that you can still apply today? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. It's just constantly looking at like what environment you're in and how to be more efficient, right? So looking at the process, understanding like, okay, what are the basic mechanics of how this like little business works? And then how do you continually evolve and make it more efficient? You know, over time, I actually invited you know, my neighbor saw that I was making so much money. And so other neighborhood kids would come and then my sister came. And so we ended up having this little, you know, operation. Um, I didn't think ahead of time that I should be skimming off the top from, <laughs> from my sister or the neighbors. But, you know, nowadays I would have been like, hey, wait a minute, I could have had a nice pyramid scheme going. Um, but I was really fortunate. Like my, my dad is uh, a bit of an entrepreneur himself. He runs um, 
an electrical business. He's an electrician. He worked at a factory for part time and then he would come home, um, change out of his factory clothes, then go ahead and do electrical work for, you know, homes and contractors and things like that. And, uh, you know, just in general, like it, it runs in my family. I would say the other thing that I got from my dad is really, um, you know, in addition to just figuring out how to continue to evolve your business, but negotiation skills. Um, one of the elements that, that we had growing up was my dad was really good at fixing mechanical things. Again, I mentioned we had all kinds of little parts and, and mechanical items to make things around the house. And uh, one time he and I worked on the snowmobile that we we're going to fix. And so we worked on it together and got it up and running. And my dad put it up for sale. And he said, listen, Sheila, like, I know that we've helped out. And I think, you know, you should get part of the profits from the sale. But when they come to buy it, um, you're going to have to negotiate the, the sales price. And so I was like, okay. And he's like, we've got about, you know, $350 in, um, in cost and in labor and what we need to get out of it. And so anything that you can negotiate, you know, greater than $350, we'll split 50, 50. Hmm. And so, you know, this guy shows up to, to buy this snowmobile and my dad steps back and, you know, the guy like goes to offer a price and he's like, no, you gotta, you gotta negotiate with the kid. <laughs> and the guy, you know, just like looks at me, like, he's like, Hey, it, it's hers, you know, you need to negotiate with her. And so like really these little lessons early on help prepare me for, you know, life in the business world. And, and eventually, you know, the seat that I have today. So what would you sell it for? I don't remember. It was like 500 bucks. Like it was, it was a decent profit where like the light bulb goes off where, you know, constantly you're like, oh, there's a better way, a faster way to make more money. Like I made more money fixing the snowmobile than I could collect in cans all season. And so there's just these little like lessons throughout um, that helped me continue to evolve that process and continue to figure out how to get more efficient and smarter with your time and, and energy and effort. Wow. So the young age we've got, we've learned supply and demand. We've learned <laughs> negotiation. We learned profit margins. Right. You know, another part of that is you're a social entrepreneur as well, starting now, recycling, right? We love it. Yeah. It helps the environment out as well. So let's continue on that path, Sheila. Yeah, absolutely. Let's go, let's go to college. Let's go to university. You still had the business spirit. What did you do then? I did, yeah. So, you know, I was really fortunate um, to go and play lacrosse in, in college. So I went and played at Duke uh, University on the women's lacrosse team. And while there, I studied mechanical engineering. I had this idea that, you know, I was really good at math and science. And, you know, again, like from my dad, like had taught me that like, hey, he was like, you better go to college because, you know, you don't want to be digging trenches for your, the rest of your life, which is a, a job that I did in the summer for his electrical business. And so um, leveraging, you know, my, my prowess in, in high school math and science, I was like, yes, I'm going to go be a mechanical engineer. And so I went to Duke to study mechanical engineering, um, really got into that, you know, while playing lacrosse. And of course, you know, coming out at the time I graduated, you know, if you were a, a fantastic engineer, like one of the places you got hired in was, you know, the big three. So, you know, General Motors, Ford. Uh, in Chrysler out of Detroit, Michigan. And so I set my sights on working for one of the big three, graduated and, uh, and joined uh, as a mechanical engineer working in the factories with, uh, with General Motors. And so my very first instance out of, uh, out of university was really trying to figure out how to help the factories produce the next models. And so when a new model comes in, you have to go into the factory and you have to understand, you know, what needs to change in order to produce the next model. And so my role of an engineer, uh, when I thought was, you know, more of like a product, like, hey, I'm going to invent like the newest, greatest things that people want was really, you know, really kind of narrowing in on like, how do I make this next model? How do we produce this? What needs to change? And so my kind of idea of what an engineer was versus the reality um, mm -hmm. kind of set in in those first couple of years. I was like, ah, maybe this isn't right for me. And so I ended up spending, you know, three years, um, learned a lot in, in manufacturing, learned a lot about how the operations work, which actually, you know, comes back later in the story to today, you know, our TeamSense serves, you know, really large scale manufacturing companies. And so a lot of those lessons learned then apply today. Um, but at that moment, I was like, I don't think that, you know, this role as an engineer is right for me. And so I decided to, uh, to take a step back and shift my career and go into, um, go into marketing kind of product development. And so my big stepping stone in order to make a career shift was going back to business school. And then from business, then is this what led you to Whirlpool? 
after that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I went back to business school and actually, you know, I found business school and I don't know if it's, I, I think back quite frequently on it, actually, um, I found business school to be much uh, less intense than engineering school at Duke. And I, I debate whether that's because, you know, I wasn't playing a division one sport, you know, while trying to study or was just kind of like really finding my groove of like, hey, these are my people. Um, but while at, at University of Notre Dame, where I got my MBA, I actually started a business because, you know, I didn't want to just do my work or like go out and party. It was like, hey, like, why don't we get something done? And, and I had some extra time on my hands. And so we actually started a, a business and won the Notre Dame uh, business plan competition. And the irony of the whole thing was the, the business was a social enterprise, also recycling, but in this case, recycling uh, unused medical supplies from uh, kits that are used in surgery. And so our goal was to take these unused medical supplies from, you know, surgical kits and put them into more like generic, we'll say organizations. So instead of, you know, the specific type of gauze or the specific type of sutures, you just put them into, you know, sutures or gauze and then look to move those goods abroad um, to what we call like second tier nations. And so got that business up and running. We had the angel funding and I was doing that kind of on the side of the, uh, uh, of business school and then, you know, eventually graduated, still had the business and came to the really fast realization that um, I needed to pay back my student loans from graduate <laughs> school and the uh, the income from a, uh, a startup wasn't going to help me do that. And so uh, Whirlpool Corporation is about an hour north of um, where University of Notre Dame is and, and they invited me to come in to a marketing rotational program. And so at the time, you know, I thought, like, hey, I've been doing school full time and running this business full time. Like, I absolutely can continue to run this business and, you know, join Whirlpool, um, but had that hard reality of, you know, what the business would actually take to get up and running and what a full time job at, you know, a Fortune 500 actually takes to uh, to excel and ended up having to close the business um, and devote, you know, 110 percent of my time towards my career at Whirlpool. So Sheila, before we go into Whirlpool, yeah. you know, just for the, you know, our, our, say our average audience, you know, is, is around 28 to 34, 35 to 44. Like that's our bell curve of our audience yeah. listeners. So these are so some of these people, you know, reached out and they are interested in going back to business school, yeah. um, but kind of have those questions. What did you learn? Uh, what do you take away from business school? And would you, if you were going to do it over again, would you go back? Oh, yeah, I would go back. I think, you know, business school really gives you that ability to do a, a step function change in your career. And so without having gone back to business school, I don't think I could have, you know, successfully landed a career in kind of product development and marketing space from having just a straight engineering background. Right. Okay. I think on top of just, you know, career switching, which it's, it's pretty common to do so in, in business school, you know, the networks that you make and the, the, everybody always asks, like, what would you do differently? I would take more finance classes. And like, the funny part is, is everybody told me this mm -hmm. and I didn't listen. And now I'm the same one saying the same exact thing, right? Like finance is the universal language of, of business, you know, across the globe. And so the better that you understand, you know, impacts to you know, the P&L and the balance sheet and how all those play together, like just the, the more intelligent you'll be and you'll be up to speed on the language fluency that needed uh, to run the business moving on. And, and that's interesting that you say that because it seems like when you were in Notre Dame and you had this idea to provide these, these gauze kits and these medical services to underserved countries, um, Maybe it was difficult or maybe you didn't have the expertise to look at the business valuation or the actual logistics of what that would cost to get, you know, that kit to that country. Yeah. What would be the margin? So uh, maybe walk us through that revelation of, you know, hey, I'm going to maybe give up on my side hustle right now to go pay off my bills. Like, what was it? that really uh, got you to understand that this is going to be a very difficult business to get off the ground? Yeah, well, you know, we had er early success. Like we won the, mm. the Notre Dame business plan competition. And what we thought was kind of the crux of the business was like, are hospitals really going to give us this stuff, right? Like mm. for sure they're throwing it out, but are they really going to let us come in there and take it? And then you know that the demand for medical supplies, you know, around the globe is super high. Right. And so in our 
kind of basic estimate, we're like, all right, we know that the demand will be there. Like, can we really get the supply? And the supply thing would be, you know, the biggest nut to crack in the business. And when we got into it, it turned out to be the exact opposite, right? Like the hospitals were like, here, take it, like yeah. get it off our hands. They're paying to dispose of it. And so they saw us as a way that was just like a cost reduction that literally cost them nothing. They could get a great benefit from it and, you know, talk about it socially. And then um, we had all of the supplies coming in, but then kind of like figuring out how to get those supplies abroad was much, much more difficult than what we had anticipated. You know, in order to make it efficient, you know, you had to send in these large containers. You can't just send a UPS box, you know, sure. of gauze to, you know, one of these countries. And so in order to make it efficient, they had to order an entire, you know, container full at a time. At the time that we started the business was during the, um, you know, economic meltdown, 2008, 2009. And so if you look at just a percentage of funds that they would need to spend to get an entire container full of, of materials, it would represent, you know, 75 to 90% of their annual budget for the entire hospital. And so now all of a sudden you're asking this, you know, individual hospital, which they're not well networked in these countries. And so like in the US, we're very used to like buying groups and like large networks of hospitals. They're, they're individual hospitals buying kind of among themselves, not networked really well to then spend, you know, 90% of all the money that they have for the year with you on one shipment, a company that has no name that just came out of nowhere, they're like, yeah, no. And yeah, so like exactly. actually like meeting that was, was really, really tough. And just that message of like how important cash flow is, right? Which you hear a lot in business school of like, yeah, cash is king. And like you hear now, even in when you listen to earnings release, you know, they're always talking about the cash flow and the cash generation. And like feeling that like personally of like, oh, like, man, we can't continue. You know, we've got um, all the operations and we still need to pay everyone to, to keep this up and running. And so that realization came in and was like, okay, well then I can't get paid. And I knew, you know, at the time, like if I, I went and talked to, you know, investors and folks were interested in investing in the business and really helping us make it a go, but at, they, they wanted, you know, me as the leader, understandably to be there a hundred percent. And so, you know, just doing the math of like, okay, I can be there a hundred percent. We can keep the business going, but then I can't take out a salary that will help me pay off my, you know, student loans at Notre Dame, it just became obvious that it, it just was not the right time for me um, to be leading a startup. And I needed to kind of, you know, take care of business on, on the home front and make sure that uh, I didn't fall behind on, on my student loans when I had a, a great opportunity in front of me for, for a whirlpool. Well, Sheila, I think it's really important that we touch on all of these because, yeah. you know, for people listening, I think, you know, they're going to understand how well-rounded, you know, of a, 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 of a business leader that you are. Yeah. And I want to make sure we touch on kind of where these experiences come from. Sure. So you, you start off with entrepreneurship, you know, an early age negotiation with your father, right? You go into engineering and operations at, yeah. at, at an automobile organization. Uh, you have this startup launch. So you're, you're kind of understanding how to take something off the ground, how, uh, how to uh, find ways to sell your product. Uh, what are the margins? What are you going to run into? You experience failure and and maybe you say, how, you know, okay, how do I actually, how am I actually going to bring in cash for myself to pay off uh, these student loans that I have? And then you go into marketing and sales in Whirlpool. Now we're here. Tell us what you learned. What were some of the experiences you, that you had, especially overseas? Yeah, yeah. A couple like just really marquee experiences. So I joined Whirlpool in uh, a leadership development program that allowed me to rotate through different facets. And I'd say there's two kind of really, or maybe three, um, really defining moments for me, you know, as I, I, I kind of view myself as growing up within Whirlpool Corporation. And for those of you that don't know, Whirlpool owns Whirlpool, KitchenAid, Maytag, Jenner, um, Amana Brands. We also made Kenmore at the time. And so I, I joined Whirlpool and, you know, one of my early roles was being the, the product manager for dishwashers, right? And so dishwashers as a product, you know, you start off with the opening price point is, you know, $299 for a dishwasher from like an Amana brand. And then that same exact functional product, like it still washes dishes, still, you know, does it in roughly the same amount of time you sell on your KitchenAid brand at your high end at, you know, nearly $3,000 a piece, right? So you've got this span of $300 to $3,000 for the same exact functional product. Right. And as a product manager, you're like, okay, like, how do you do that? Right. And like, 
how do you get people to to buy you know the same thing at such drastic different pricing and so that's really where i learned about you know like product innovation and like what drives people and particularly like what drives people across brands but you know in the context of whirlpool like the brands and like the differences are so nuanced because it's the same product again you know coming off the same line but yet at the same time could could drive like so much value and so like what a great opportunity you know like we we're doing uh customer research and looking at you know how do we bring innovations and then in particular like what do things um people at the low end like really really care about uh but they don't care at all about the high end but then those high end folks really really care about those things right and so like once you can define these kind of anchoring points you can say like okay like the low end doesn't give a crap about that on the high end but the high end people must really really like that and so you could start anchoring and then building your line around it and so it really caused me to like pay a lot closer attention to you know the way customers talk about things the way people talk about the products in their home and so i use that you know as an example of just really honing in kind of you know customer listening and and product development and so the other opportunity that kind of sprang you know out of uh out of whirlpool was you know they decided to create uh, a a group it's now called w labs at the time it it wasn't named that but you guys can look it up uh which is basically innovations and so whirlpool if you think about their their core competencies and you know refrigeration and dishwashing and and laundry they have incredible you know market penetration like you you're not going to find a new country where people aren't using you know refrigerators right and so every day what they're fighting over is you know the the little bit of market share for folks that are either you know upgrading their appliances or they they've otherwise died and so Whirlpool has an incentive to to create new categories right so how do you kind of you know create new products that are completely blue ocean And so they created this W Labs um group which is a a group that's meant to go out there and find new products for them to you know innovate and kind of continue to add value uh in the homes. And so um one of the leaders at Whirlpool had known he was in kind of similar venture circles as I was when I started the business at Notre Dame had known that I had this experience and oh, so nice. when they were looking for like employee number 1 he's like hey I know you know Sheila Stafford you know did this thing and and she's got some experience with VC like why don't we get her in and be kind of employee number 1 and we want to kind of operate very similar to like an internal VC. And so, you know, they brought me in there and my directive was like we want to build something that like our customers give us permission to play with with our brands that fits our core competency but that doesn't exist in the world today. Mm. Ready go. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, uh okay. And so, you know, I first started really looking at trends and understanding, you know, what was going on in in the macro environment looking at you know what are really Whirlpool's core competencies like where is our portfolio of IP and R&D you know looking at where the customers will allow the brands to play and at that time I had you know full leverage across all of the brands right so not just Whirlpool but KitchenAid Amana Janair wherever like where else could we play and so one of the ideas that I came up with that eventually you know spawned into a product was a, an indoor home composter Now this was back in 2011 2012 and so there's a bunch now we'll say out in the market but this was um pretty early on and so my first kind of foray was developing a business case and then pitching the CEO of Whirlpool on on why we should invest in in building a, an indoor home composter and so lucky for me they decided to invest and the first investment was really small and just like conducting research and kind of proving out that this business is worthwhile of of further investment and so we kind of went through these little stage gates where each time they would trickle a little bit more funds until eventually you know we actually got like a big slug of funds and they're like okay let's go build it this project turned into you know uh, a a joint venture with Procter and Gamble Procter and Gamble came on board to help us you know manage the odor of the composting process and Whirlpool was going to create the machine and we had this JV set up and I was leading the project you know I'd come in every day and like Yeah, it was just so invigorating. Like I love just opening the door of this lab and we literally had like 70 people like all there like working on a product that one benefits the environment, two is like brand new innovation, and three like what was so like exciting for me was like they all had like a meaningful job and work to do because I had an idea and because I could pull together that idea and pitch the CEO and convince somebody that they should fund us. And so um i had the opportunity of kind of raising this uh this new product 
we named it Zara um, from scratch. And so we kind of marched that forward. And, and unfortunately, it got caught up in a little bit of an issue with that joint venture. So Whirlpool and, and, uh, and Procter & Gamble decided to, to dissolve that joint venture, which then sent Whirlpool a little bit into a tailspin on, you know, how are we going to manage the odor? Like, we don't have any supply chain. We don't have any expertise in, you know, odor management. And so they then had an option. Do we, you know, take on the odor management portion ourselves and figure out a way to solve that? Or do we kind of scrap the, uh, the program? Because everybody knows that there's no way you're going to have a home composter in your home if you can't manage the odor, right? That's problem number one and, and super, super obvious. And so at that moment, they came to me and they said, listen, like, I know that you've kind of brought this up from scratch, but like, we're at this point where like, the product's not going to launch for some time because now we have to go back and redo all of that, you know, odor management stuff on our own. And so you can continue to stay in this role and continue to kind of, you know, lead your, your baby, or we've got this great opportunity for you um, to, to move abroad and, and help us with an integration. And so, you know, I was faced with this decision of like, oh man, like I literally built this up from scratch. Like, yeah, this is a setback. You know, I was confident that we could figure it out and everybody was invigorated, but at the same time, like just standing still for, you know, 18 months to two years in my career, as we waited to kind of pick up the steam on, on that side was also, you know, not, um, not ideal, right? Like I'm young and I want to continue to progress. And so I had a really great mentor um, and had lots of, you know, long discussions with like, okay, like what, what should I do? Like, how, how should I, you know, look at this decision? And so in the end, um, I decided that I would, I would take the move abroad. Um, and so my family and I were, were asked to move to Northern Italy. So not a bad uh, assignment abroad and uh, help Whirlpool with an integration. They had bought a, uh, an appliance manufacturer in, in Italy called Indesit. And at the time, it was the largest um, acquisition that Whirlpool's ever made. They paid over a billion dollars for this company. And if you look at just the Whirlpool European business, um, Whirlpool, Europe, and Indesit were uh, equals. And so it was a basically like a, an acquisition or a merger of equals in Italy that, uh, that I went over to help out with. So Sheila, let's, let's pause there for, yeah. for a little bit and just kind of hone in on what you just covered. Um, this to me is like entrepreneurship. You know, it's a it's a large organization spotting someone in the company and saying, okay, we we either want to disrupt ourselves or we want to have someone that's uh, young and, and needs the experience is going to grow and is going to take on a new initiative. Now, I think this is the beauty of capitalism, right? They have a concept. We want to create something new, something that's going to be in the home uh, and is going to solve a problem. Uh, you come in, you get the funding, you're able to go in on a day. Partnerships are coming in to eliminate the odors. And what's also the beauty of capitalism, you run into things along the way. And, and you, maybe right. sometimes you t you're too early in this process. I know we talked about this earlier and we used to have a compost bin. And the problem, the smell. Where did we keep the compost bin? Outside. Outside. <laughs> How annoying was that for me to not put the coffee grinds in the trash can and put it in the compost? Very annoying. So, you know, it, it, it is a very interesting concept. I'm sure we'll see it happen in years to come. The question I have for you with um, this customer experience, uh, let's see, customer X here, is how do you distinguish a need from a want? Uh, the reason I say this is with your cans example, the very beginning, that was a need. People need, need to throw cans, not on the street, but in some, in some place. So it was a need. With the medical kits, um, it was also like a feel good for the hospitals, but also a need for someone yeah. else. But how do you dis distinguish a need from a want during that research and you, where you know something is actually going to be a viable product or service? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And we did a, a lot of user research and set, had some hypotheses on like, and, and that's a, it actually like the way that you talk about it is is interesting, a need from a want. And so what you want to do is you really want to hone in on what your hypotheses are of somebody who feels the need to have a home composter, what might be different about them than somebody who has a want. And so in this particular for the home composter, you know, we had this hypothesis that this person is, you know, incredibly eco-friendly. This person is looking at, you know, the impact to, to climate and, you know, what the, the negative impact is, you know, for their family and, and how that kind of creates a, a legacy. 
and what other things that they might have purchased, right? So at the time, you know, Tesla was not around, uh, at least to the extent that it was today. Maybe if you were, you know, ultra wealthy and you could have uh, one of those cool like X-Wing cars. Um, but other than that, it wasn't, you know, as prevalent as we see today. And so, you know, honing in on folks who had hybrid vehicles or, you know, the early model electric vehicles are folks that would view this product as something as a need versus somebody be like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool. Like, it's kind of catchy and, and, and be more of a want. And so it's really kind of taking those hypotheses then putting out, you know, concept videos and then helping to understand, you know, based on other behaviors um, and really honing in on like, hey, is this hypothesis right or is this hypothesis wrong? And so what we found um, were, you know, those are obviously like really strong indicators, but those folks actually were not um, the most uh, indicative because a lot of those folks have already started doing home composting outdoors, right? And they're like, yeah, I've already got my process. Like I figured it out. I spent the time to, you know, um, do the research and understand how to do the proper mix of, you know, browns and, and greens to make sure that the compost does what it needs to do. And so it was actually more of the middle ground of these folks that like really wanted to do something, but didn't have the time or didn't have the, the wherewithal to actually spend the, the energy to actually create the compost bin. And so um, really a lot of in-depth research and then, you know, constantly thinking those hypotheses and constantly testing your hypotheses with your research. And and where does the price variation come into play with that? I mean, you had basically the same product. One was selling for 300, the other one was selling for yeah. 3,000. When it comes to need versus want for that consumer, how did that pricing come to be? And how did you know you could sell a product for that much more? Yeah, well, I mean, it really depends. Like that's where you can learn a lot about brand power, right? So like you guys can imagine that the KitchenAid brand power and the legacy that KitchenAid has commands value. Mm -hmm. And you understand that, you know, a consumer that has like a full-blown KitchenAid kitchen, you know, views their kitchen as, you know, an investment. They view it as a, a social gathering place, a hearth, you know, for their home. Where somebody who has, you know, more of uh, an economical point of view, like they just view it as a means to an end, right? Mm -hmm. Like they don't have all of these emotional connections to like their kitchen right. and, and what they build and that. Cold. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's more of like, yeah. yeah, it washes the dishes. And like, I wish it would be a little bit quieter because it sounds like a freight train when I'm trying to watch the, you know, the TV. Mm -hmm. um, but like, it just needs to do its job and be done. And so it's really kind of honing in on like what drives that emotion. And if you can find something that is, you know, attached to an emotion like that is where um, you inherently can can theoretically increase price uh, quite a bit. So Sheila, you get placed yeah. into Northern Italy now. Uh, <laughs> you're you're given this new role. Uh, tell us about your first experiences in, in Northern Italy. Yeah. So the interesting thing that I failed to mention when I first kind of previewed the role in in Northern Italy was, you know, they wanted me to go over and lead the supply chain integration. And so, you know, thinking about it, I'm like, why would I lead the supply chain integration? Like, I get that I've done product development, I would say I had a stint in sales. And like, mm -hmm. up until leading the supply chain integration and taking this role, I would say I, I joke around that my only interface um, with supply chain or my experience was when I was in sales, and I was, you know, fresh out of, uh, out of business school, I joined the sales team and was selling for uh, what was a baby brand at Whirlpool called Gladiator Brand. They do garage organization. Anyway, um, they were at the time less than a $50 million brand. And so I had to do the, the sales and I landed uh, Costco and Sam's Club for the first time for that that organization. And I was about to like really blow up my numbers. And the truck that loaded up the first you know shipment of goods out towards the end of the quarter actually never left the yard. And so, of course, I couldn't count that in my sales because you can't actually recognize revenue until it leaves the yard. And so I just remember being so deflated and like calling up my supply chain person and be like, how hard is it to like get the truck out of the yard? Like, I, I don't understand. Like, it cannot be that hard. And so that was like my experience. And then all of a sudden now, like, here I am, I'm going to go lead the supply chain. Right. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, why like i really want to go to italy like i love the idea of living abroad and, and working abroad and kind of immersing myself in a new culture and adventure but like to lead the supply chain like okay like i'm glad you guys have confidence in me you know as a leader but 
like I'll, I'll give it a go. And so, you know, I joined with, you know, minimal, nothing, no experience in supply chain. And here I was, you know, in charge of a team and our responsibility was basically to take the Whirlpool supply chain and the Indeset supply chain and create a new supply chain that would kind of suffice for this new business um, with the acquisition. And so, you know, very early on, like my goal was like, how do I just add value, right? Like all I need to do is like, I have experts on my team from both Indeset and Whirlpool, both of these combined teams, and I just need to figure out how to add value. And so the very first thing I did was I realized that when they would have meetings, nobody was actually taking notes and nobody was actually doing any follow-up. And so we were actually super inefficient, right? You can imagine you have a meeting, everybody agrees, everybody departs, you meet again the next time. And like the first half of the meeting is spent rehashing the same exact stuff that you did the last half of the last meeting. And now you've already burnt all this time. And so I was like, you know what? I'm just going to take notes and I'm going to go in between meetings and follow up with everybody individually. And so literally, you know, we'd have these questions about supply chain. I'd be like, okay, well, we talked about this. And then I had this incredible opportunity to go and meet with all of these experts one-on-one -on -one and say like, hey, like, it's really interesting. Like I have this in my notes and like, you mentioned that, you know, if we did this, that it would cause a problem. Like, help me understand, like, why would that cause a problem? I, I don't really know. And so like over time, you know, just by taking notes and follow-up, not only did I add value because the next time when we came into the meeting, we had an update of like, here's all the things that were, you know, that were done since the last meeting, but I just was able to, you know, get basically teaching one-on-one -on -one from all of these experts to actually go and, and, and do the job and, and help them be successful. And so, you know, from just, you know, asking really basic questions on like, why would you do this? Or why would you do that? Was able to garner a lot of information that helped me be successful in that role. Well, I think it was, you know, good on the person who hired you, right? They recognize someone who is a great listener. And that's that trait seems to really manifest itself within your meetings, within your organization, or your customers. What were some of the things that Whirlpool was doing different than Innocent? Innocent was doing different than Whirlpool when it came to their manufacturing and getting the product to their customers. Yeah, you know, great question. And so one of the things with the the two different supply chains is they had two completely different philosophies. So Whirlpool had what they call a downstream philosophy. So basically, you know, all of the countries in Europe, they would place their orders for, you know, how many goods they thought they were going to sell that month. The factory produced them and then immediately shipped them out uh, to the place that put them in order. So you think about, you know, we had factories center like all through Europe, but, you know, a lot in, in Poland, a lot in Italy, um, some in France. And so you can imagine, you know, these goods, if, you know, Bel Belgium orders or the UK orders, they get produced and immediately sent there. Now, Indesit was the exact opposite, and they had what they call an upstream model. And so Indesit would actually hold the goods. They would collect the orders from everybody, but then they would hold them at a central warehouse location. And they would only disperse them when the actual order came in. And then if they had more orders than um, what was forecasted, they would disperse them in kind of a, a profitability or and or importance. And so they were a lot more strategic on how they actually delivered the goods and who would get what uh, when it came time for when you had more you know, demand than you had actual supply. Mm. And so you had these two completely different philosophies uh, sitting at the table, me with no supply chain experience saying like, OK, like we have to figure this out. Right. And so, you know, one of the first steps was obviously understanding what factories were going to stay. Uh, once we had that kind of, you know, footprint, we then could start planning all of the outbound shipments. And so I just asked really basic questions that you'd ask, you know, when you're developing product, right? And so you say, okay, like you have this, this downstream and you have this upstream, like what are the benefits of either, right? And so like downstream, the team was like, oh, well, the, the supplies are, you know, right there on site. And so if a customer asked for them, we could have turnaround within, you know, 24 hours and have the goods at site. Where the upstream team is like, yeah, but, you know, if they're already down site and they miss order and now you've got stock that's stuck there because they couldn't sell it, like, then you got to pay to have it come back. Or if you don't have it leave here, you know, you could optimize for profitability. And then I would ask other questions like similar. I mean, just like really basic questions like, OK, like, that's great. Like, I'd start to see some of the benefits. Like, what do our customers care about? Hmm. Like, do the customers care that, you know, they have stock nearby and they could get it within 24 hours? Like, are they willing to to pay more for that benefit or is that just something that they like? And then you would ask even further questions on like, 
do the customers in Switzerland, are, are they different than the customers in France? Like, can we have two different models or do they all have to be served in the same way? Like, is it one or the other? And so like really basic questions end up leading to really profound discussions among our team and like how we would actually build the supply chain, you know, for the future of Whirlpool. And what was the main goal there? Was it to you know, just achieve economies of scale? Was it to just, you know, continue to grow? What was going to be our, our highest margins? Like what was the, the ultimate goal and what did you come up with? Yeah, so I mean, the ultimate goal was really to deliver a supply chain that one, you know, obviously had a lot of efficiencies from two separate supply chains, right? You're serving very similar customers with very similar product. And so, of course, with many acquisitions, you know, you expect to get some efficiencies in the, in the business between the two. But then two, really set ourselves apart from the competition, right? And understand what is it exactly that the customer wants? What are they you know, expecting from a service level? And then are they willing to pay for that and make sure that we can deliver that as efficiently as possible? Mm. And so what we ended up finding was that, you know, probably not surprising to, to most folks on here is that you know, like it ended up being a hybrid of both models and really determined on, again, if you think back to like my whole story on right. all the different brands, really determined on like, what is it that customer wanted? And it turns out like some customers want that, you know, 24 hour experience, or maybe the market dictated it. In some cases, like Switzerland, for example, is a really wealthy market in Europe. Um, they have a lot more percentage of a higher end product. And so like when customers come in and they order like that, that customer or that customer of Whirlpool or the store that they go to is expected to turn it. And so if you don't have a warehouse in Switzerland, like you're just not going to be competitive because you'll always be out of stock because those folks are expected to get it, you know, installed the next day. And so, you know, it's a mix of, you know, competitive pressure uh, as well as what the, uh, the the customer of Whirlpool is willing to pay. And if they're even storing stuff on on their uh, their premises as well. So Sheila, this, this is it's very interesting. It's a very interesting yeah. career path that you had had. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I want to bring us now to where you are currently. And yeah. it seems like you kind of had this early onset and experience of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, you go into engineering, um, you, you, you dabble with entrepreneurship again, entrepreneurship, operations, manufacturing, customer experience, experiences, products, marketing, sales. But now it goes back to the language of business with financing and accounting. What have you learned with team sense when it comes to making strategic decisions for how to grow your company? Um, and how did you first get the, the financing to get team sense off the ground? Yeah, great question. So I think, you know, what did I learn is like, again, the common thread through all of my stories is really being able to listen to the customer and not necessarily in the exact words that's to say, but like, what do they really mean, you know, when you're asking their questions and really ask, you know, like basic thoughtful questions on, you know, what is it that's their pain point and what do they really care about, you know, related to that pain point. And that's really how, you know, TeamSense came to be and like how TeamSense has actually grown quite well. And so if I step back, like TeamSense started off as a, a COVID symptom tracking solution, specifically for manufacturing workers. We knew when the um, the pandemic hit that, you know, this worker population would be, you know, disproportionately impacted, right? Like they can't come and work at a desk like you and I are so fortunate enough to do every single day. Like their job is on site, you know, on the line. And the unique aspect that I know from, you know, my experience and in, in working with manufacturers are these folks don't have access to a computer. They don't have co corporate email addresses. They don't want a company-sponsored app on their personal phone. And so all of these things kind of combined made it really, really hard for them to get back to work safely when everybody was coming out and, and producing those, you know, tracking apps or GPS this or GPS that. This population just didn't want it. Right. And so we kind of had this vision of, hey, you know, I think that one is we can create an app-free solution that helps them get back to work. But two is that this worker is going to be disrupted, you know, from for a long period of time. If you think about like the way that they're trained, everybody is brought into a single room and they go through, you know, the standard OSHA training. The way that they're communicated is via daily standups, face to face, or you know, really large scale town halls. Um, and so, like all of these elements, we could see kind of looking forward a little bit, we're going to be, you know, just disrupted in the long term. And so we actually built TeamSense with this idea of 
hey, we could go to market as a COVID symptom tracking solution and for sure could do that. But with the same technology core, we can accomplish a lot of other workflows as well. And so we were prepared to pivot and kind of take off that go to market jacket of a COVID symptom tracking solution and put on, you know, our next jacket of, you know, right now we do absence management, we do, you know, employee um, on demand portals to give them access to resources and information, uh, all via text and app free solution. Hey, I, I should, should have asked you what uh, TeamSense yeah. actually does first. Sorry. No, um, no problem. And, and for sake of time now, uh, Sheila, yeah. just quickly, let's let's uh, talk about a little bit about what you've learned from the financial aspects. How'd you get the funding? What are some things yeah. about how you view business and launching a new concept or product versus when you, let's say, were at Notre Dame? Yeah, you know, so from similar to the experience at Notre Dame and even at Whirlpool, like getting the funding is really just putting together a series of logical arguments that that makes sense. Right. And so trying to get somebody to follow along and saying, like, OK, like, do you or do you not believe that this worker population needs to get back to work? Yes. OK. Everybody agrees that. Great. Perfect. We're all on the same page. Like, do you then believe that my hypothesis that they're not going to be willing to accept these app solutions that Apple's making, Google's making, Microsoft's making, everybody else. And so then they're like, okay, well, maybe, like, help me understand. So you might have some pieces of data that help them understand to say like, you know what, we researched and, you know, just even like, it could be as few as 10 or as many as a hundred, you know, folks being like, nope, don't want an app, but start to pull some data in to help, you know, bolster your, your next argument. So now if you have, you know, this population's disrupted and that they're not willing to download an app, and we know that they need a solution that needs to get back to work, then the next thing is like, okay, like, does this team have the ability to make a solution, right? And so you could have a quick demo that, you know, you didn't invest that much in that helps kind of, you know, bring them along the next step in logical argument. Then of course is, you know, how big is this addressable market? And in our case, in TeamSense, you know, we look at hourly workers and, and serving the folks that don't work at desks. Um, and then if you think about hourly workers in general, you know, you've got a portion that work in manufacturing, you've got a portion that work in construction and logistics, and then you've got a portion in hospitality, and then even in like food service and um, retail. And so there's some differences among these hourly workers, you can't just treat them all the same. And so the next thing is really kind of target your market. And so in our case, we knew that, you know, retail food service, they have completely different needs than those of manufacturing. So then you focus in on manufacturing, understand what that market size is, and then you could uh, Put together a basic go-to-market of like, hey, this is how many thing, how many people I think I can sell. This is what we need to build, um, and you start small, right? And so our first investment was, you know, just a couple hundred grand to to prove it out and get a proof of concept. And mm -hmm. and we were really fortunate in TeamSense, in that uh, we had our first paying customer. We got our funding May 18th, and had signed our first paying customer June 1st. And I actually didn't make them pay until the end of June because our product was such an MVP that I was like, yeah, I can't like in, in like with all of my um, nature, like ask you to pay based on the, the MVP that we delivered. Right. But by then, you know, behind the scenes, we were pulling together as quickly as we could. And, and by the end of the month, we had something that was uh, was worthwhile and we had already sent our second customer and we were off and running. And, and this is the $100,000, this is equity, this is an investment, this is not a loan. Yeah, so it was uh, an equity investment. So they took a portion of, uh, of TeamSense equity in return for, uh, for the investment. And then you were able to prove this product, you were able to get the minimum viable product out there. Yeah. What is the current state of TeamSense? Yeah, so now we've got you know, tens of thousands of end users. We sell to you know, large scale manufacturing, I would say, um, our sweet spot is folks that have over a thousand end users. We do serve folks that are, are less than that. Um, and basically we sit on top of the existing infrastructure and provide the glue that connects all of the hourly workers back to their companies. Incredible. Sheila, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I mean, going from the pinball machine all the way to now where Team Sense is, it's an incredible journey. Um, you know, you're, you're a well-rounded leader. That's why we wanted to have you on the show here today you know, uh, very unique. And I hope, you know, and wish you the best of luck, you know, with Team Sense. Let's bring this home, Sheila. What is your definition of a real leader? Yeah, my definition of a real leader is someone that's not afraid to try something new, hire a team, regardless of whether you're the expert or not, and just figure out a way to remove barriers and help them succeed. Love it. Uh, for Sheila Stafford, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, uh, remove barriers. And always, folks, 
Keep it real. Thanks, Sheila. Thank you. All right, good people. And thank you for hanging on to this episode of the Real Ears Podcast with Sheila Stafford. Sheila, we had a couple questions flying today. Um, yeah. Before we answer this question, I want to make sure that everyone is aware we have a double header today. That's why we had to cut this interview a little bit short today. Uh, Sheila, I'm sure I could talk to you forever uh, and continue to go on about TeamSense. But first, where can people find more information about TeamSense? Yeah, you can go to www.teamsense.com and check us out there. And then feel free to uh, to look me up on LinkedIn. I'm always looking to uh, to network with like-minded folks. Amazing, amazing. Well, Sheila, this question comes in from Shane Jones. And Shane asks, if you didn't have student loans, would you have continued with your medical Ooh. supply startup or had you started to lose your passion and optimism for the idea at the same time? Ooh. Great question. If I didn't have student loans, I absolutely would have continued. I loved it. I had that bug of, you know, doing something great. And again, that like social venture that helped so many folks and the, the traction that we had on the supply side uh, was incredible. And so, yeah, I would have stayed with it. But uh, student loans come calling. Here we are, here <laughs> we are. The, you know, the ups and downs of business, right? The beauty of Absolutely. it, the art of it. Well, Sheila, it's a, it was a pleasure speaking to you today. Um, for folks that had to miss this interview or joined a little bit late, don't worry. This episode will be edited and produced to all of our platforms on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube. Uh, and it's actually streaming live on LinkedIn right now. So if you want to follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to any of those channels, this podcast will be re-released. Make sure to share it. Make sure to leave a review. And don't forget, folks, if you're an impact leader, you want to have more deeper conversations with your peer group, go online and become a member at the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative today. That's it from me. Thanks for being a Real Leader and stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks, Sheila. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real